Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Blue Moon. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a hard apple cider, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the crimes of the Hillside Stranglers. This was the name that was given to Kenneth Bianchi and his cousin, Angelo Bono Jr., who murdered 10 girls in Los Angeles from October 1977 to February of 1978. Before we look at their crimes, let's look at the background of these two killers. Kenneth Bianchi was born on May 22, 1951 in Rochester, New York to a prostitute who gave him up for adoption two weeks after his birth. He was adopted by Nicholas and Francis Bianchi. He was described by his adoptive mother as a quote-unquote compulsive liar and he was prone to anger and behavioral issues. He was accused of committing the alphabet murders in Rochester but was never formally charged for these crimes. Angelo Bono Jr. was born on October 5, 1934 in Rochester to first-generation immigrants. He had an extensive criminal history involving grand theft auto, assault, and rape. In January 1976, Kenneth moved to Los Angeles to live with Angelo. When they ran out of money, they started a prostitution ring. They impersonated police officers and targeted runaways. In order to facilitate their work, they brought a client list from Deborah Noble. Through Noble, Bianchi and Bono met their first victim, Yolanda Washington. When Bianchi and Bono found out that the list that they received from Noble was useless, they took their anger out on Yolanda. They raped and murdered her and dumped her body near a hillside in Ventura County. During the autopsy, it was determined that her body had been washed and there were faint marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. Their next victim was Judith Miller. She was last seen alive on October 31st, 1977. Bianchi and Bono told her that they were undercover police officers, handcuffed her, and took her to Bono's auto upholstery shop. Her body was discovered on November 1st, 1977, after someone reported finding the body of a teenage girl. She was found naked, face up on a parkway in a middle-class residential area. The homeowner had covered her up with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood children from viewing her on their way to school. Ligature marks were on her neck, wrists, and ankles, indicating to the police that she was bound and strangled. The body had been dumped, indicating she was killed elsewhere. A coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. Another body was found five days later on November 6, 1977. She was identified as Lisa Caston, and like Miller, she had ligature marks and had been strangled and brutally raped, but not sodomized. Bianchi and Bono followed Caston after she was seen driving home from work, pulled her over on the streets she lived on, presented a fake police badge, and told her that they were detectives. They then handcuffed her and told her they needed to take her in for questioning. She was the first victim to not be involved in sex work. In early 1977, during the murder spree, Bianchi and Bono abducted the daughter of actor Peter Lorre, Catherine Lorre Baker. When they saw a picture of her sitting on her father's lap, they decided not to murder her as that would attract too much attention. 
On Sunday, November 13, 1977, Dolores Ann Cepeda and Sonia Johnson boarded a bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza and headed home. They were last seen getting off the bus and approaching a two-tone sedan which reportedly had two men inside. Their decomposed corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy on a hillside near Dodger Stadium on November 20, 1977. It was determined that they had been strangled and raped. Also on November 20, 1977, a hiker found the body of Christina Reckler. Ligature marks were on her wrists, ankles, and neck, and she had bruises on her breasts, which were obvious and blood oozed from her rectum. Unlike the first three victims, she had two puncture marks on her arm, but no signs of the needle tracks that indicated a drug addict. It was later revealed that Reckler had been injected with Windex. On November 23, 1977, the badly decomposed body of Evelyn King was discovered. The severity of the decomposition prevented determination as to whether she had been raped or tortured, but she had been strangled like the others. In response, authorities created a task force initially composed of 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Office, and the Glendale Police Department to catch the predator now dubbed the Hillside Strangler. On November 29, 1977, police found the body of Lauren Ray Wagner. She had ligature marks on her neck, ankles, and wrists like the other victims. There were also burn marks on her hands indicating she was tortured. On December 14, 1977, the body of Kimberly Martin, which was naked and showed signs of torture, was found on a deserted lot. Martin had previously joined a call girl agency because she feared exposing herself on the street with a strangler on the loose. The killers happened to place a call to her agency from the Hollywood Public Library payphone and she was the call girl who was dispatched. When the police investigated the apartment she had been dispatched to, they found it vacant and broken into. The body of the final Hillside Strangler victim was discovered in Los Angeles on February 17, 1978. Police responded to the scene and discovered the new body of the car's owner, Cindy Lee Hudsmith. Her corpse again showed ligature marks and she had been raped and tortured. After having been strangled, her body was placed in the trunk of her car, which was then pushed off a cliff. Cindy's murder had initially been unplanned. Bianchi had arrived at Bono's shop at closing time on February 16th to discover Cindy in the company of Bono. The two men had a private discussion, opting to make her their next victim. In January 1979, after intensive investigation, police charged Bianchi and Bono with the crime. Bianchi had fled to Bellingham, Washington, where he was soon arrested by Bellingham Police Department for raping and murdering two women he had lured to a home for a house-sitting job. Bianchi attempted to set up an insanity defense, claiming that he had dissociative identity disorder and that a personality separate from himself committed the murders. Court psychologists observed Bianchi and found that he was faking, so Bianchi agreed to plead guilty and testify against Bono in exchange for leniency. The case took a bizarre turn in 1980 when Bianchi started dating Veronica Compton. During his trial, she testified for the defense. She was later convicted and imprisoned for attempting to strangle a woman she had lured to a motel in an attempt to have authorities believe that the hillside strangler was still on the loose and the wrong man was imprisoned. 
While incarcerated, Bianchi had smuggled a semen-filled condom to her in the spine of a book to use it to make it look like a rape or murder committed by the Hillside Strangle. She was released in 2003. At the conclusion of Bono's trial in 1983, presiding judge Ronald M. George stated during sentencing, quote, I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case were it within my power to do so. Ironically, these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims. The defendants have escaped any form of capital punishment, end quote. Bianchi is serving a life sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Bono died of a heart attack on September 21, 2002 at Calipatria State Prison in California, where he was serving a life sentence. So Jenny, after hearing all of that, what are your thoughts on this case? I hate it. It's so disturbing. I really didn't know much about this case beforehand. I knew the name Hillside Stranglers, but I didn't know who they were, who their victims were, anything like that. They really are scum. I agree with what Judge George said that I know that we're against it, but if I was going to say if anyone deserves it, I feel like these two would be very deserving of it. How many women were victimized? And that poor woman who just spur of the moment they decided to kill. It's really disturbing. And again, we've talked about this before, but seeing sex workers brutalized is really disgusting and I'm sick of it. And poor Kimberly Martin, who was afraid of the Hillside Strangler, she did something that she thought would make herself safer and then she walked right into the trap that they set for her my heart really goes out to these victims and their families what are your thoughts on this really awful case yeah i think that they are two of the most disgusting human beings that we've talked about on this podcast i think that they did everything in their power to make the victims feel humiliated and to cause pain upon them and we're going to talk more about sexual sadism a little bit later i truly believe that they are the textbook definition of sexual sadists and i think that i agree with you when you say that if there was anybody that was going to get to death penalty it should have been these guys kenneth bianchi and angelo bono were serial killers who worked together to torture rape and kill their victims while most serial killers work alone pairs account for up to 26 percent of killers when serial killers operate as a pair one member ordinarily assumes the dominant role while the other assumes the submissive role in this case bono was idolized by bianchi Though rare, there are other examples of pairs who killed, and we're going to look at three examples. The first is Fred and Rose West. They committed at least 12 murders between 1967 and 1987 in Gloucestershire, England. All the victims were young women. At least eight of these murders involved the West's sexual gratification and included rape, bondage, torture, and mutilation. The victims' dismembered bodies were typically buried in the cellar or garden of the West Cromwell Street home in Gloucester, which became known as the quote-unquote House of Horrors. Fred is known to have committed at least two murders of his own, while Rose is known to have murdered Fred's stepdaughter, Charmaine. The couple were arrested and charged in 1994. Fred killed himself while detained at H.M. Prison, Birmingham on January 1st, 1995, at which time he and Rose were jointly charged with nine murders and Fred with an additional three murders. In November of 1995, Rose was convicted of 10 murders and sentenced to 10 life terms. The next pair is Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. 
During 1979, they kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls in California. The two men met at a correctional facility where they bonded over their mutual interest in sexual sadism. After they were released from prison, they reunited. The duo focused on teenage girls who were hitchhiking along the Southern California highways using a toolbox filled with instruments to inflict pain on their victims before strangling them. Authorities apprehended the pair, whom the media eventually dubbed the Toolbox Killers, after Norris told one of his friends about the brutal crimes he had committed with Lawrence. In 1980, Norris pled guilty and received 45 years to life in prison. In 2009, a parole board denied his request for release. Bitteker was tried in 1981. He was convicted on multiple counts and sentenced to death. He is still on death row in California's San Quentin State Prison as of this recording. Finally, we have Leonard Lake and Charles Ning. During the mid-1980s, they raped, tortured, and murdered an estimated 11 to 25 victims at a remote cabin in Calaveras County, California. Lake met fellow former Marine Charles Ning through a War Gamer magazine advertisement he placed in 1981. On June 2, 1985, Ning was caught shoplifting a vice from a hardware store in San Francisco and fled the scene. Lake later drove to the store and attempted to pay for the vice, but by then, the police had arrived. After his arrest in 1985 on illegal weapons, auto theft, and fraud charges, Lake swallowed cyanide pills that he had sewn into his clothing and died four days later. Human remains, videotapes, and journals found at the cabin later confirmed Ning's involvement and were used to convict Ning on 11 counts of capital murder. Ning is still on death row. So, Jenny, what do you feel about these cases and killers who work in pairs? There's something, I think, even more disturbing about them than just lone wolf, quote-unquote, serial killers. That 26% statistic was really shocking to me. That's a lot more people than you'd think. The most notable, I guess, like, killing pair, to me, are Fred and Rose West, and they're some of the most vile people I've ever heard of. And there's also that Canadian couple who killed several young women as well, and they come to mind. It's definitely a risk to have that kind of partnership with someone, but I'm sure that there is some type of comfort or even like a thrill within that. And I wonder how people come to start these like killing partnerships. I wonder if with Bono and Bianchi, you know, they were family. So if one of them maybe just started confessing some of the messed up things that were in their head and the other one was like, well, I've also felt that way or I think like this too, or that sounds really interesting. Like, I wonder what that process is like to get on the same page with someone. Because at least for some of these people, this stuff is planned. It's not necessarily like one person killed and the other person was there. I'm sure that happens in some cases. And then this other person gets involved and enjoys killing. What about you? Yes, I agree. It's so interesting to hear about people that kill in pairs because of the risks, like you said, that's involved with that. You have someone that can, at the drop of a dime, give you up to the cops, get themselves a deal, and now you're really dealing with the consequences of actions that you both undertook together. And I think that you see a lot of familial pairings that happen or some sort of very close bond. It's not like two strangers typically come together to kill each other. It's two people that already have a level of trust in one another. And I think that that might provide some additional safety and why they may feel comfortable 
exploring their dark sides with each other. And I definitely agree with you when you said that these are all plans. In a lot of these cases, even though you do have someone who's more dominant, the submissive usually looks up to the dominant and wants to replicate their behavior. So in a lot of these cases, it turns out that the submissive person was actually more brutal than the dominant person was because they were trying to impress them. I think when people work in pairs, their crimes are so much more brutal. Like you said, the hillside stranglers are some of the most brutal people we've talked about the toolbox killers are honestly people i have avoided researching more because it's too disturbing for me what are your thoughts i agree because i think that in a way it becomes a competition who can be more brutal who can inflict more pain and i think that when it comes to pairs keeping your victim and torturing them is also much more common so it's not a thing where the person is dying quickly i wonder if there is any survivors of these type of attacks that can speak to what was happening during the assault so we have talked about serial killers before and a common theme is the joy they get from the fear that they're inflicting upon their victims and the sexual satisfaction they receive from murder this is known as sexual sadism and it was on full display in this case. The phenomenon of sexual sadism was first scientifically described by Richard von Kraft Ingbing in 1999 as a sexual preference disorder that focuses on the infliction of pain, suffering, or humiliation to achieve sexual gratification. Despite clear definitions that specify the sexual objects, duration, and distress necessary for a disorder, evidence for the diagnostic reliability for sexual sadism has been mixed. According to the DSM-5, depending on the criteria for sexual sadism, prevalence varies widely between 2% and 30%. Prior to the release of the DSM-5, this disorder was known as sexual masochism and sadism. Sexual masochism and sadism has now been split into two separate disorders, sexual masochism disorder and sexual sadism disorder. Both are classified as paraphilic disorders, which requires the presence of a paraphilia that is causing significant distress or impairment or involves personal harm or risk of harm to others. Among committed sexual offenders in the United States, less than 10% have this disorder. Among those who have committed sexually motivated killings, rates of sexual sadism disorder range from 37% to 75%. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Hillside Stranglers case. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the boys on the track. As always, stay safe.